Bibles up this morning to the Gospel of Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Let's continue to worship this morning as we hear God's word read and as we hear it preached. Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boandries, that is, the sons of thunder. Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come this morning confessing our need for your word. Psalm 119 says, My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. And that is so true of our own hearts this morning. We are dust clingers. And Psalm 119 says, Again, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. And it says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. And, oh, Father, we stand in need and we pray. We pray for your working through the word. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Give us proper affections that we might take your word in and treasure it as it ought to be treasured, that we might use it as it ought to be used. And Father, we pray for reformation for our own hearts, for our own lives. We pray this morning as we enter into the Gospel of Mark yet again that you would freshly open up the Scriptures to us and that you would show us the glory of your Son. Show us how he perfectly fulfills the Old Testament Scriptures, how the law, the prophets, and the writings point to him and how he fills them out and brings them to their end and their climax. No, Father, may we be a people who hear your word. Even more, may we be a people who hear the call of Jesus and respond in obedience. 
So, Father, we pray and we pray earnestly. Do a good work in us today by your word, through the Spirit, for the sake of Jesus' name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I love how the Gospel of John ends. John ends with these words. He says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. And were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So Jesus did a lot of things. He said a lot of things. So much so that John could say the world itself cannot contain the books that would be written. We just let that settle into our hearts this morning. That's a staggering claim by by John. And And a plain fact emerges from the statement. We don't know most of what Jesus did or what he said. In fact, we have to reckon that the Gospels, while completely truthful and accurate in what they say, they do not give us a comprehensive biography of the Lord Jesus. When we think hard about this, we don't actually know that much about the childhood of Jesus. We don't actually know that much about the adulthood of Jesus. The Gospels give us a a glimpse into his ministry and then a sustained look at his death and his resurrection. And this fact is so apparent when we open up to the Gospel of Mark, the shortest Gospel in the New Testament. And we rightly could call Mark a, a ruthless writer. He's ruthless. He carefully picks material to include in his book while he carefully excludes other material. In Mark, we don't get to hear about the virgin birth. In Mark, we don't get the Sermon on the Mount. In Mark, we don't get a lot of parables that we find in the other Gospels. In Mark, we don't get a long and informative resurrection appearance of Jesus. And so this raises some important questions, and we're going to hover around these questions this morning as we look at our text. The first question is this. Why would Mark, as a a ruthless writer, who excluded the birth story of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, many parables, even resurrection appearances, include this. A great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And include this. He appointed the twelve. Simon, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And second, we can ask, we can press further, Mark writes this story with an aim. He writes the story that we might know something, that we might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that we might know the good news of this person. And so we have to ask, well, how do these mundane details, geography, and a list of names reveal to us the good news about Jesus and who Jesus is and what he has come to do? Third, we can make this intensely personal for ourselves. And Mark writes this story not just for the sake of information, but he writes this story that we might do something with this story. The story meets us and forces us to a decision. Jesus preaches, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, so what? Well, repent and believe in the gospel. So how do these facts, geography, list of names, help us walk in faith and repentance? How do these facts thrust upon Jesus' demand in his preaching freshly? 
So in order to do justice to this text, we're going to take two readings of it. The first reading will be a broad reading, and we're going to read with our Old Testament ears on to understand the significance of our text. The geography, the names, the actions of Jesus call for an expansive and sensitive reading to the Old Testament. And then a second reading, which will be a narrow reading, and we're going to take this broad story and then we're going to bring it near to our own hearts to see the significance of the geography, the names, the actions in Mark chapter 3. So we can say there is a right way to read a book, and there, of course, is a wrong way to read a book. No one picks up a novel and opens it halfway through and expects to make sense of it, expects to understand what the characters are doing and what they're thinking, or why the author is writing in a certain way. In the same way, there's a right way to read the Gospel of Mark, and there is a wrong way to read the Gospel of Mark. Jesus had a Bible and his Bible was the Old Testament. And his Old Testament was broken up into three parts. The law, the prophets, and the writings. And Mark in chapter 1 cues us into how we should read his gospel correctly. In the first chapters, he systematically points us to the whole of the Old Testament, quoting or alluding to the law, the prophets, and the writings. So Mark points us back to the law He alludes to the writings of Moses. He points us to the book of Exodus when he says this, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. And Mark points us back to the the prophets. He grounds this whole book of Mark in the author of Isaiah. And he quotes this from Isaiah. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And Mark even points us to the writings. Mark quotes from the book of Psalms, particularly Psalm chapter 2, you are my beloved son. And according to chapter 1, if we're listening to Mark carefully, if we want to read the story about Jesus and his kingdom with coherency and competency, we must do so in light of the law, the prophets, and the writings. To do anything else would be like picking up a novel, opening it halfway through, and expecting to make sense of the plot line and and the characters. Without the Old Testament, without the law, the prophets, and the writings, we only have half the story and we're missing so much. And so Jesus instructs us from the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 39. He says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. And so we're going to take Jesus' statement in the Gospel of John to the bank, and we're going to read the Old Testament in light of Jesus, and see how they bear witness to Jesus. Now, the Law of the Prophets and the Writings are a a mass of pages. And the Old Testament as a mass does not particularly help us make sense of the geography, the names, and the actions we see in in chapter 3 of Mark. And the Old Testament as a whole is just too bulky and expansive. It's just too heavy by itself. And so we need help in order to illuminate our text. What we need is a specific handhold, something we can grab hold of in the Old Testament, something that we can bring to bear upon Mark chapter 3. And so for our purposes this morning in understanding Mark chapter 3, we can simplify the Old Testament for our purposes down to two characters, God the creator and his people, the created 
when you open up the Old Testament and you go to the law, the very first verse in the Bible introduces us to the first character. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's God. And who is God? Well, he is the creator. And we don't have to read very far in the story to find the other, the other characters. Chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And the creator takes the created and puts, puts the created in a garden. But in this land of delights and pleasures, the created rebel against the creator. And the fruit of this rebellion is the very opposite of creation. The created are handed over to uncreation, to death. The Lord says, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And when we come to Genesis chapter 3, injustice, the, the story should end. But the first character we meet in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, re-emerges in the storyline. God is the creator and maker of all things, and he begins in Genesis chapter 3 to wield his creative force. The God who called forth light, land, and sea, the God who created beasts, birds, and fish, will bring new life to his creatures handed over to death. And from Genesis 3 onwards, we meet the creator God who brings life to his dying creatures. So we can fast forward from Genesis chapter 3 to Genesis chapter 12. And the scriptures bring us to a couple and death pervades the scene in Genesis chapter 12. Sarai was barren. Her, her womb could give no life. And we meet a man by the name of Abram. And the book of Hebrews says he was as good as dead. But the creator creates life for there's only death. And he promises to Abram, I will make you into a great nation. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And just as creation sprouted by the word of God in Genesis chapter 1, new creation lives by the promises of God who recreates a world of death into a world of life. And accordingly, the promises of God ring true. What happens to Abram? Well, he's renamed. He becomes Abraham. And by the time we get to the fourth generation, Abraham has 12 great grandsons and the promise of God sharpens. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. But this story that we're, we're telling this morning is a complex story. The world of death rears its ugly head once again and a famine surrounds the, the family of promise and pushes the great-grandchildren of Abraham down to Egypt where they're enslaved in a land of death and darkness. But the creator God of Genesis chapter 1 hears the cries of his people. And the creator God of Genesis chapter 1 comes to his people's aid just as the creator separated the waters from the waters in Genesis chapter 1, the creator reappears and splits the sea in two so that his people would not die, but that they would live. And the creator calls to himself his people in the Exodus story. He draws them out from Pharaoh, from this land of death, so that they might live and worship him. And in the Exodus story, the Lord descends on a particular mountain, Mount Sinai, and the people, the, the 12 great-grandsons of Abraham, in, this, in essence, gather around this mountain, the whole people. And this creator inhabits the mountain of Sinai, and by his sovereign call, he, he calls to himself those whom he wishes. He calls them by name. 
The Lord calls Moses, Aaron, Nabat, and Abihu, and the, the 70 elders of Israel, and they, they come up the mountain and meet with God and feast in his presence. And the word of the Lord sounds forth from Sinai to the nation of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 1 sums it up well. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. What does Sinai tell us? The Creator desires for His people to live and not die. But again, this story is a complex story that the Scriptures tell. And death does not simply oppress God's creation, but it enters into the very hearts of His people. Just like Adam, the first man, was placed in the garden, a land full of delights and pleasures. Israel is placed in a new garden, a land flowing with milk and honey. And just like the first Adam, Israel rebels against his creator. In result, covenantal death draws near to the whole nation of Israel. And the words spoken to Adam in Genesis chapter 3 apply well to Israel. You are dust. And to dust you shall return. And again, the story should be over. Death should be the last note. But in the midst of exile, the God of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, draws near again. And the Old Testament launches us forward in hope. And Isaiah starts to sing about hope in chapter 43 of his book. And listen carefully to the gospel according to Isaiah. He says, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And Isaiah says, recording the words of the Lord, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. The Old Testament launches us forward in hope, looking forward to the end of death, looking forward to the end of exile. And we land in the New Testament where we see this hope accomplished, this hope fulfilled. And so we can ask, according to the law, the prophets, and the writings, and specifically Isaiah chapter 43, what will this creator God do for his people? He's going to gather his people He's going to call his people. He's going to create a people. Now when we turn to Mark chapter 3, the geography, the names, the actions of Jesus bear fresh significance. Mark is not reporting random information, but he's tapping into the story of the law, the prophets, and the writings. And he's telling the story of Jesus in light of the story that he sees in the Old Testament scriptures. 
And so we can ask, well, what will the Creator God do? Well, He will gather. In Mark writes in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 3, Jesus withdrew with His disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And we need to take notice of this geography. Mark says, from Idumea, 120 miles to the south, from beyond the Jordan to the far east, from Tyre and Sidon to the, to the north. And Mark reveals that the days of Isaiah are coming true in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. The people of God who've been scattered to the north and the south and the east and the west, they are now being regathered and they're being regathered around a certain person, the Lord Jesus. We can ask, what will the Creator do? Well, He will call. Mark writes in verse 13, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And the scene in the Gospel of Mark should immediately remind us of the Exodus story. There are so many parallels and similarities. Israel's freed from the grasp of Pharaoh so that they might worship God, and then God brings them to a mountain. And here in verse 13, Jesus is in the midst of a throng of a multitude, and where does he go? He climbs a mountain. Like Moses went up, Jesus goes up on top of a mountain. But this is the last of the similarities between Jesus and Moses. For Jesus does not occupy the mountain like Moses did. How did Moses occupy the mountain of Sinai? Well, Moses was a guest. He was invited. He received a summons to come up the mountain. But Jesus occupies the mountain like the Creator And Mark's words should jar us in light of the Exodus story. He went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Go back to the Exodus story. Yahweh descended on the mountain. Yahweh called. People came to him. His voice could not be resisted. And Isaiah prophesied of the coming day of salvation. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And then we were left with this news. Jesus goes up on the mountain and he calls 12 men to himself by name and they come to him. Again, we can ask, what will the creator do? Well, he will create. He will create a new people. And Mark writes in verse 14 this, he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And we lose the depth of insight by solely relying on our English translations here. The same word for appoint, he appointed the twelve, appears in the Greek translation of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. What does Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so in light of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we can retranslate Mark chapter 3, verse 14. We can say, he made the 12. Or we can translate even more provocatively, he created the 12. When we look at the story that the law, the prophets, and the writings tell, the Lord is consistently revealed throughout its pages as the one who creates. And the Lord created the world and all that is in it, and more specifically, he created a people, a people for his own possession, a nation. 
And Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1 should ring loudly in our ears. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel. We can say this. Just as Israel of old was made up of the 12 great-grandsons of Abraham, the new Israel is made up of the 12 apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, just like Yahweh in the pages of Genesis and Exodus, creates for himself a new people. So there's good news here for us, and we see Jesus filling out the storyline of the Old Testament. And through this broad and sensitive reading to the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings, we've, we've answered our first two questions. Why would Mark take precious time to lead us through these, these mundane details of geography and lists of names and these actions of Jesus climbing a mountain? He does this because these details reveal, reveal precious news about Jesus and his work. Here we see the, the promises, the storyline of the Old Testament. Here we see what Isaiah wrote about realized and fulfilled. Jesus gathers, he calls, he creates a new Israel, a new people around himself. And Mark is giving us tastes of what it means for the kingdom of God to be near. And this brings us to our, our last question, and this is where we have to begin our second reading. Mark writes this story, not just for the sake of information, but that we may do something with this story. Jesus preached when he went into Galilee, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. So what? Repent and believe in the gospel. How do these facts, this geography, these names, these actions, help us walk in faith and repentance? And so we can ask again, what will the creator God do? Well, he will gather and we can say this, the observable sign for participation in the kingdom of God, we could say this, the, the central mark of being a member of the new Israel is not your ethnicity, it's not your social status, it's not your politics, it's not even the family you were born in. The gospel of Mark provides a radical reorientation of how we think about the people of God. To participate in the kingdom, to participate in the new Israel means to be gathered around the Lord Jesus Christ. We can just think back to the Exodus story. Who did Israel gather around? Israel left Egypt and then they gathered around Mount Sinai. Why? Because God was there. Who did Israel follow in the wilderness? They followed Yahweh. The pillar of cloud during the day, the, the pillar of fire at night, they followed Yahweh wherever he went. Even the very arrangement of Israel's camp was determined by the very presence of Yahweh in the tabernacle. Israel would be arrayed around the presence of the Lord. In the Old Testament, Israel's life was determined, completely organized by Yahweh. And so we can ask ourselves, what does it mean to be a person who practices faith and repentance. Well, it means to be a person whose life is radically reoriented around the Lord Jesus Christ. This is where the Gospels push us. This is where Jesus' teaching pushes us. Our lives are not to be oriented around family. Jesus challenges us in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. He says, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
Jesus prods our, our consumerism, our materialism. He says, our lives are not to be oriented around the making of money, the gathering of possessions. Jesus pushes on us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. He will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus continues to push on us. Our lives are not to be oriented around homes or lands or fields. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19, verse 29, and everyone who has left houses or fields for the sake of my name will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Again, Jesus pushes on us. Our lives are not to be oriented around self-fulfillment or comfort or personal gain. Life itself is to be leveraged for the sake of Jesus. And Jesus reasons with us in Mark chapter 8. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For my sake, for my sake, for my sake, Jesus says. And as we look at the list of the 12 in Mark chapter 3, we can see so many differences between these men. They had different occupations. They had different families. They operated with different personalities. And as you read the Gospels, you see the personalities of the disciples come out. They're different. They had different politics. But the disciples shared one important factor. They gathered exclusively around the Lord Jesus. They followed Jesus. They were with Jesus. They listened to Jesus. We can apply this to ourselves this morning. We can look around at our brothers and sisters in Jesus. And there are so many differences between us. Some of us come from different countries. Some of us have different social standings. We live in different neighborhoods. We have different jobs. We have different upbringings. And we could go on listing difference after difference after difference. But there's one thing in common with all of God's people. There's one compelling mark. We have gathered around Jesus. Even more, we prize Jesus above everything else. We prize Jesus more than our families. We prize Jesus more than our wealth. We prize Jesus more than our lands and our homes and our fields. We have learned to prize Jesus even more than life itself. Jesus' words have come barreling down upon our hearts for my sake, for my sake, for my sake. And we can ask again, what will the Creator God do? Well, He will, he will call. So we can say this, the decisive factor for participating in the kingdom of God the decisive factor for membership in the new Israel is not how one has lived his or her life. It is not the good or bad things that a person has done. Rather, it is solely based upon the sovereign and gracious call of Jesus. We can go back to the Old Testament. We can go back to Genesis chapter 12. What set Abram apart from the rest of the world? Was it his godliness was it his fertility? Was it his prowess or his wisdom or his might? We could ask all these questions, but the answer is no. The decisive factor was that God drew near to this man and he called him. And we can go back to the Exodus story and we can ask these same questions. What set Israel apart from the rest of the world? Was it their righteousness? 
Was it because of their, their military power? Was it because of their great numbers? No, the decisive factor was the sovereign call of the Lord. And we can look closely at the list of 12 men in the Gospel of Mark. What set these men apart from the rest of the world? Was it their educational background? Was it their religious training? Was it the money in their pockets? Was it their membership in the local synagogue, their faithfulness in the synagogue? Was it even their interest in the Lord Jesus? And the answer is no. Verse 13 pushes us and it shows the reason why these men were called. Because Jesus desired them. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired and they came to him. And so we can reason with our own souls this morning. What was true of Abram, what was true of Israel, what's true of the 12 in the Gospel of Mark is true for everyone who practices faith and repentance. The subjects of the kingdom are determined by the king himself. And this is what grace means. We've not gotten into the kingdom because of our own wisdom, our own righteousness, our own adherence, but because of the gracious call of our Savior. Simon and Andrew, they were fishing. James and John, they were busy mending their nets. Levi was collecting taxes. They weren't looking for the kingdom of God. They were at work. But Jesus came to these men and he said and he determined their existence by saying, follow me. He called to him those whom he desired and they came to him. And the Lord Jesus still draws near to his sheep and he still determines his disciples' existence with his sovereign and gracious words. Hear what our sovereign Savior yet preaches today. Our Savior picks up the words from Isaiah 43 and he draws them near to our own hearts. He says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you because you're precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. What precious words that our Savior preaches to our, our souls. I love you. And these are the words that determine our existence. Again, we can ask, what will the Creator do? Well, He will create. And to be a member of God's people, to share in the new Israel, means to be radically dependent upon the creative power of God. And there is this distinctive strain that we hear being sung throughout the narrative of the Scriptures from the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. God makes something out of nothing. He did it in Genesis chapter 1. There was nothing. God spoke and then there was something. He did it in Genesis chapter 12. Abram was good as dead. He had no children. God spoke and then there were children. And he does it in the gospel as well. Mark chapter 3 verse 14. He created the 12. 
And here we see the great truth that the people of God, even more precisely for our purposes this morning, the church is directly dependent upon the creative power of God. The very foundation of the church, the apostles, they were formed through the power, the creative power of God. And each and every individual afterwards who is joined to the church, who stand upon the firm foundation of the apostles, is the very fruit of the creative power of God. And here we're presented with glorious good news for our souls. The earth exists. Why? Because God said so. Abraham had children. Why? Because God said so. Israel came out of Egypt. Why? Because God said so. The twelve were called. Why? Because God said so. And the church will not falter or fail because Jesus has said so. Praise be to God. The church does not advance through the wisdom of men nor through the campaign strategies of politicians, but we are an organism that exists by the very creative power of God. And we can have supreme confidence this morning. The Savior who appointed the twelve will see that his purposes for the church will prevail. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Jesus says, and I tell you, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In the Gospel of Mark, we have a Savior who gathers, who calls, and who creates. And he draws near to us this morning, and he speaks with authority, and he says, won't you again repent and believe in this Gospel? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do rejoice in this gospel. What a glorious gospel it is. We exalt. You have given us the law, the prophets, and the writings, and they are so rich as they point us, as they show us Christ in his fullness. And, oh, Father, we want to be a people who gather around Jesus. We want to be a people who who are determined by Jesus. We want to be a people who hear Jesus. We want to be a people who are created by Jesus. And so, Father, we cast ourselves upon your word this morning, and we pray, do your work amongst us again. Create life where there is no life, and sustain our lives now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.